Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. Welcome back to another episode of Derailed Trains of Thoughts, your storytelling podcast. This is episode 19, and this is Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Wallace P. Fitzgerald. Alright! And this is uh, Nick Hayden, a.k.a. Itchen. Or Itchen? I'm trying to remember how you pronounce this guy's name. Your own name, you're not quite sure? I forget because people used to make fun of it, but you sound like Itchen. So I think, it, I think we changed it after that. It was from this, the first novel I ever tried to write, actually. My friend and I in high school, we were, he was the world builder and I was the writer. And he and there was these nine gods and there were war coming. And I still have chapters of it somewhere. But I used it, on, that was my name on a mud, a world time mud we were on. Nice. So. Very cool. Yeah, and you've, you've all heard of Wallace P. Fitzgerald before. This character I played in a movie called The Love Life of Wallace P. Fitzgerald. Which we actually just uh, commentaried last yeah, week. Yeah, we did a commentary for it. Well, we originally were got, getting together, and this serve, this is going serve as a mini-project update, to do a commentary for the Taylor Trilogy. Dun-dun-dun! So we're hoping to put... Out a special edition of the Taylor trilogy toward the end of the month. We want to have it ready in time for there's a sort of a, an event going on at Taylor University Fort Wayne, and so uh, Nick, Natasha, and myself, and Aaron Brosman, a friend of ours who was who, involved in it, who needs to get on this podcast sometime, sometime definitely. But we did a commentary for it, and then we were like, we were having so much fun doing a commentary for Taylor trilogy. We did one for Wallace P. Fitzgerald. So I guess well, I'm sure we mentioned Taylor trilogy on the podcast before, but in case you haven't listened to all our previous podcasts, shame on you. <laughs> um, it's a it's a trilogy of short films about uh, Mike and Sophia, who uh, have various romantic mishaps between each other during their years at Taylor University. Nice set of romantic comedies as, uh, as it pertains to college life. Particularly Taylor, but... Particularly Taylor, but I but, think there's there's jokes and humor that anyone... Yeah, and they hear. become more and more universal as they go along. Yeah, so. definitely. So, you can be looking forward to that. In the meantime, I think we'll... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! <laughs> okay, that was weird. All right. <laughs> well, I guess that's... You really can't expect them. No, I guess not. But that kind of ties into our story school, oddly enough, which we'll go into next. If you heard our sneak peek at the end of last episode... Um, you probably groaned. <laughs> hopefully you figured out what today's theme is. And if not, well, you're probably kind of dense. <laughs> uh, but today's theme is comedy. Which was suggested to us by uh, Nathan Marshan. Indeed. and In our first email. Yay! <laughs> And, there was uh, much rejoicing. And it was it's a nice piggyback from last week when we did, or last episode, when we talked about tragedy. But today we're going to do comedy, and not just in its Shakespearean sense, but, you know, anything that will make you laugh. So, what is makes it? you laugh? Um, Monty Python makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Homestar makes me laugh. Um, yeah? Oddly enough, Talladega Nights makes me laugh. <laughs> I've not seen all that. <laughs> Some people can't stand Will Ferrell. That movie in particular, just so absurd. I I do have. I'm one of those people that has kind of a rough time with Will Ferrell, with the exception, notable exception of Stranger Than Fiction, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful film. I guess absurd humor I enjoy, as in humor that is just off the wall. Joppa, if you ever seen Joppa as a web series, is just that sort of like either you think it's funny or you think it's just dumb. Well, my no, Python's a lot that way. That's true. No, the the thing is though, I think. I'd say a lot of people enjoy random humor, but there's, in some ways, there's kind of a right and a wrong way to do random. Family Guy is a kind of trashy show that is that should really not be generally watched, but I have to confess to watching it to a certain degree in college. Um, I'm not particularly proud of that, but 
even people who enjoyed the early seasons of Family Guy would say that it kind of went downhill in later seasons where it sort of became too random where like just anything a character could say would warrant a sudden cut to a completely random goofy scene which can be funny sometimes but overdone it just kind of becomes overdone i think the thing with random and in humor in general but especially with random is that humor depends on context that there's a certain things that you understand how the world normally goes and then this crosses the boundary somehow Mm -hmm. when i used to write more humorous articles for our college newspaper it was easy because the society was college society. And there were easy <laughs> things to play off or not play off of. Romantic comedies for, like, the Taylor Trilogy. There's certain ideas that are universal to romantic inst- uh, relations that you can then exaggerate, lower proportion, juxtapose with strange things. Sitcoms for a long time were popular because everyone had a family and knew what it was like to deal with a grumpy parent or whatever. And I think establishing that shared experience is necessary. Well, for random stuff, you have to make sure that people still have a ground. That's true. Yeah, for even like abstract humor, there's you have to have some sort of shared community. Let's say, um, okay, the Muppets, which can be quite chaotic at times, and we love them for it. But uh, their grounding, I guess you could say, is entertainment, as in like the you know the show business. In, in the the whole stage show back backstage in front and mm-hmm. stage adds a whole set of expectations yeah like it's completely ridiculous to see this character making music by bonking little furry things on the head but you know the background for that is hey it's show business all's fair in show yeah exactly and and with things like the muppets or homestar runner which is kind of absurd humor Uh that eventually the characters themselves create their own set of expectations that you you learn how these characters interact with each other and that becomes another source of that's true there's, there's a, certainly a, a wide difference between the antics of, say, the Swedish chef, who's just kind of crazy, and then you got Kermit and Piggy, and their humor derives a lot from the relationship kind of based stuff. And then you got Sam the Eagle, who's just the straight man, yeah. or uh, tries to be. Yeah. <laughs> so the characters kind of inform and bounce off the, uh, the absurdity that's going on. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Strong Bad, for instance, or Homestar Runner starts off, there's context with sort of 80s, compu- you know, computer humor. Uh-huh. But eventually, the characters themselves became their own jokes. That's true. I mean, you got weird things like Homsar, <laughs> like a completely absurd character. It makes no sense. <laughs> and eventually, it, it becomes really funny because, hey, it's Homestar being, or Homsar. Homsar. Homestar is funny also because he's a <laughs> lovable dope. But Homsar is funny just because you never know what kind of la-la land you're going to get out of him. Well, then you, you get all the spinoffs like the, the Teen Girl Squad. The context of that is just ditzy girl uh-huh. humor and the strong bad drawing badly. Arrowed! <laughs> <laughs> you do have to wonder if they, I mean, there's a possibility that they eventually they just kind of, they use that well dry because we don't have Homestar anymore, sadly enough. It is. It is very sad. And speaking of Muppets, I was kind of before this this uh, discussion kind of broke down some, on my own scale, different types of humor. Muppets are very fond of puns. And that's, and that's a language base. You know, that basically just says, look, everyone knows English, mm-hmm. and we're going to play with it. And I love, I love puns. I mean, anyone oh, who yeah. me, knows me knows that. <laughs> I, I think we've said it on here before that, that puns are badly underappreciated in today's society. I think, I think on this uh, podcast one time, I talked about reading The Pun Also Rises, the book about the history of the pun. And how they used to be much more important than they are now. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, you remember Amelia Bedelia? Did you read those books? I think so, yeah. I mean, essentially, all her nuttiness comes off of different understandings of sayings, of words, and so forth. Sure, it's for kids, but hey, I mean, puns are still... Well, it's, a, it's kind of a pure form of, uh, to talk about some ideas from uh, The Pun Also Rises, that puns play, you're doing two or three meanings at once. And a lot of humor is that way, where... It's funny because it means this and it means this. Which English is an especially fertile language for that because we borrow things from like everybody else's language. (laughs) So one thing can have many meanings, sort of. And then there's the physical humor, which is, you know, universal just because everyone has uh, walked and tripped. Mm-hmm. Their head on the wall. My my wife, I had I told her I was going to say this. My wife prefers physical humor to almost any other humor. <laughs> she loves just people getting hurt. I guess. <laughs> Even your son? Not my son. Oh, okay. Me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Well, America's Funniest Home Videos has certainly proven the long-term value of that. I mean, it's basically been the same show for, like, over a decade. Yeah, exactly. Two and decades, maybe? I don't know. What, what fascinates me with that show is that those are all the video. Those are all the instances of things that we have on tape. <laughs> That's true. Which means how many of those happened off camera? <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. Sometimes life is stranger and funnier than fiction. That, that is very, very true. What were some of your other types? You had one other... I had fourth wall. I like fourth wall humor, which is kind of a specialized humor. Mm -hmm. But it's that, you know, where you say... There's a scene in... Um, let's talk about absurd humor in a different sense. In um, Waiting for Godot, which is absurd in the existential sort of view. But there's a scene where they're looking around. There's nothing on stage. They're, they're waiting for Godot. It's, it's talking about kind of this expectation for something and nothing ever happens. There's only a tree on stage and then these two characters. They look out, they're like, there's just a swamp behind us, and they look out to the audience, and a swamp in front of us. You know, it's supposed to be <laughs> playing on the audiences, you know, what they actually are. And I think, well, plays can play with that quite a bit. Yeah. And movies have, to a certain extent. But I like that sort of meta humor. It's kind of interesting to me, if played right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, I think the term fourth wall comes from plays, because it's the most literal expression. You've got the you know the backstage wall, you've got the two sides, and then the fourth wall is where the audience is at, in case you never heard that expression before. And it's certainly the most obvious in a play when there really isn't a fourth wall as opposed to like a film where you could turn and, well, there's a wall there, sort and then, of. And then sometimes they do it nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, let's see, the premiere of the most of the second half of the recent Doctor Who series, they meet Doctor Who and like, have you found our daughter yet? And he's like, I've been looking all summer, which is, they were on summer break. He went off at the beginning... Uh, at the beginning like, of summer, and uh -huh. then we've just come back to him. He's, he's like winking at the audience saying, look, yeah. it's another double meaning. Uh -huh. The Order to Stick, a webcomic I follow, sometimes they include, I mean, they've got, he uses fourth wall humor a lot in that strip. But occasionally it'll actually play a factor in the in the plot, in the continuation. Yeah. I remember there was one where there was uh, two characters talking, trying to stay hidden from these people who were looking for them. And then there was a cutaway to their friend betraying them saying where it was the next panel goes back to them in their hiding place and they're like drat that was a cutaway panel wasn't it that means they probably know where we're at <laughs> so, so it was a fourth wall humor that contributed to the ongoing story rat fist which was the most recent webcomic by doug tenable which we talked about a couple episodes ago in rat fist at one point one of the characters jumps into the world of the webcomic artist and steals his script and figures out what's going to happen next, which, you know, <laughs> Monty Python does yeah. kind of in Holy Grail, but it's, it's an interesting thing to play with. Yeah. And that one actually made logistical sense, be they were talking about parallel worlds and creators and sub-creators and stuff like that. Okay. But it was interesting. I think DC has done stuff like that, where I think there was this, you know, because DC had a lot of parallel worlds at one point. And I think at one point, one of those parallel worlds was our world, where all their stories were taking place. <laughs> Which I think at one point that involves some story with the DC headquarters being under attack and the Superman, you know, their world, very existence was at, in peril because of it. One of the early Fantastic Fours, they meet Stan Lee, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Stan Lee likes to appear in a lot yeah. of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I just, but um, satire. Satire is another, well, I was thinking about this, that sometimes you can almost express more meaning by not taking it seriously. Mm. I mean, obviously, you got the, the, the classic examples like Modest Proposal, where you're going to eat all the kids, or you're <laughs> going to roast them, and it's, you know, making fun of, I forget what proposal, uh -huh. in Britain by Jonathan Swift. Did you ever see Wag the Dog? I have not. That is kind of a dark satire on the whole political and media spin process, where essentially to cover up a potential sex scandal, his press consultants gets this guy from Hollywood, and they essentially create a war that doesn't actually take place. <laughs> like, I mean, they basically sidetrack the entire country, creating this war, like making patriotic songs with telling the story about this war hero and the skirmish, when none of it actually happened. And it sounds like it would be sort of like a conspiracy thriller thing, except it's so absurd, it's, it's quite humorous at times. Now, I will caution, they throw the F word around numerously. But it's a very clever movie. I, I think from writer writing point of view, by not having to be realistic, by not having to necessarily hold to the, you know, what people would expect. Like you're writing, you know, you want to write about some big theme, but you don't want to be all nitty gritty about it. By throwing into some bizarre setting, 
people laugh at it and you can talk about things. One, I was wrestling around for a soundtrack for this episode, and I will, I kind of want to do this uh, song called. Basically, it's um, Russian history through workers' eyes done to the song of Tetris. One of the most bizarre videos. I mean, you. It's a genius video, <laughs> but it's a very, it's very kind of humorous, fun to watch. But I mean, there's a lot of serious stuff in there. But you don't care about your learning Russian history. Because you're you're learning Russian history set to Tetris music. Tetris, and you know there there's some clever plays and phrases and some interesting and cool clip. visuals too. Yeah, and that actually involve Tetris blocks. So if you if you have not seen it, go to YouTube, type in Tetris Russian history, watch it. It is completely worth your seven minutes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, and one of uh, a satire of yours that I have tended to circulate like around <laughs> every Christmas time uh, was because you used to do this thing where you would interview fake people and this one time you did this great satire interview with this guy basically kind of lampooning the there's a certain movement in some christian conservative circles about making sure that everyone says merry christmas rather than the more politically correct happy holidays but sometimes they're so forceful with this you kind of it's like guys is this really (laughs) that big of an issue that we should and the way you interviewed this character just kind of gently poking fun of it but Saying something that really needs to be said, like, this is not a big issue. And the nice thing with satire, too, or, or using humor to make a point regardless, is that you don't have to put too fine a point on it. You can make a point, and people can still take their shades out, the shade of their truth out of it. Mm-hmm. If you would write an essay on it, you'd have to be very exact. And I hate um, summarizing my stories, like, for back covers and stuff, because <laughs> I feel like... The essence is hard to break down into something simple. So to tell something through a story or something serious through humor, it just makes it easier. It makes it like it slips under the radar. It's like watching a cartoon. You don't have the same sort of uh, defense mechanisms. Now, the trick to satire, though, I think, is not to write it in a mean-spirited way. Because I've, I've seen some satire that's like, this is not funny. This is just you ridiculing ridiculing yeah. a, a different point of view. I guess that's a, that's an interesting uh, distinction for humor. Is that there's humor that makes you laugh. There's humor that's you're trying to beat down something. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, I mean, not that might still be funny to certain people, but I think humor that lifts up, even while it's breaking stuff down, tends to be... Uh, last longer and more artistic? There's one theory about comedy that I've never quite agreed with in the sense that for something to be funny, anything funny has to be at something else's expense. Whether it be, you know, a person, a person's pride, whether it be an institution or something. And while I can see that, it's always seemed to be sort of a very negative kind of viewpoint on comedy. It has to be ridiculing something in order to make me laugh. I think it's very possible to, and family members do this all the time, you'll joke about each other in a way that obviously you might be pointing out some uniqueness, eccentricity, even down, you know, even foible, but not in a way that feels like you're trying to injure them. Yeah. I think there's humor that you maybe, maybe it is at someone's expense that you're pointing something out, but I think you do humor that doesn't injure. Yeah. I mean, Muppets doesn't seem to injure people, <laughs> generally. Well, piggy, yeah. Well, okay, Miss but Piggy. But there's, there's, kind of, there's still this unstated respect for each other, even when they say, you're all weirdos, or... I think, I like the, I like the idea of respect. I think, I think writers should try to respect whatever they're even making fun of. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless, unless for somebody that's so horrible that they're not even worth that. But oh, I guess yeah. you should give them some sort of humanity to them, at least. No, yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen The Great Dictator. By I've seen I've seen about half of it. I know Brian wants us to to watch the whole thing. I've seen about half of it, and see, I don't, Hitler's an odd case because, <laughs> because you can you can make fun and ridicule Hitler as much as you will, and no one's gonna feel bad about it. Yeah, I mean, um, that, and that, that's what I'm talking. There might be cases like that. Yeah, but I I would say he is he is the exception rather than a rule. I'd say even in like your your thing on the Christmas thing, you're doing it with, you know, a little tiny cheek. There's still a little bit of affection for the guy because even though he's making a mountain out of a molehill, at least in a sense he's trying to take a stand exactly. for something. Exactly. Now, to go back to something earlier, here's a question for you, Tim. I had this theory when I was preparing for this. We were talking about sitcoms. For, long, for There was a number of years, I don't know, probably between late 90s and recently, where sitcoms were kind of just, were just hard to come by. Nothing They would try and they just disappear after a season. 
I wondered if it wasn't because of the changing norms of families that the the common experience had shifted so much. Either that, I, I'm not saying that's all of it, because also they kept using the same old jokes. Yeah. And it's a lot of it. I, I do seem to remember, like, in the late 90s, I was kind of sick of sitcoms, quite frankly, because there were so many of them on. So there could be a, a residual effect of that. But, well, it's interesting. Sitcoms really have been changing with the times. I mean, there are, you got shows like Modern Family, which is very funny, but shows you know it it updates the general structure. It's no longer you got the parents and the kid and the five. You know, like the sorry, what was it with Tim Allen? Oh, Home Improvement. Home Improvement. You know, that was kind of, that. Oh, that's was kind a of, great show. Yeah, kind of your basic '90s sitcom, mm-hmm. and you don't have that sort of thing hardly that's at all. True. You do see more comedies that take place. In the workplace, to a sense. That's I mean, true. You've got the office. Which is probably more, probably more honest. That's true. To, to a lot of people, yeah, they yeah. may be spending more time at the workplace than they do with their own family. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse. I just thought that was an interesting. I didn't know what to come. What if I had a point with all that? I just thought it was interesting the changing Trend. reflection because yeah. the comedy tends to reflect what's going on. Actually, that's true. I mean, it tends to change with the times. At least the the dressing. Uh, well, I mean, I haven't really watched Modern Family, but isn't it? I mean, doesn't it sort of have like different sort of family units. Types of, types of family units, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it works because the writing's really good, but I wonder if they're trying to reflect more of where everyone is, possibly. And I don't know how much in the world's actually changed. I live in a very traditional family. Yeah. But you always well, hear everything's falling apart. So. Yeah. And talking about modern comedy, what do you think about current modern comedy movies? We mentioned last time that there's not much that really appeals to us. See, Why is that? Some of it is, a lot of comedy seems to be in the movie realm. Just having to break boundaries. Mm. That they're just pushing things. And like it's funny because it hasn't been seen before. Or it's funny because it's outrageous. That The gross-out humor. The gross-out. And some gross-out humor. Then someone just, it's not been done. And we're going to just do it so extreme that it's funny. Which is one Which, reason why Will Ferrell humor. Because yeah. he has I mean, these extreme characters. I, and I agree. I mean, he, he goes that way. There's just some of his earlier ones are extreme in a way that I still find funny. There's parts of the movies that I wish would disappear, but but yeah, he's gotten way over there, and they just there's not much. You know, you feel like humor. I mean, if last week we were talking about tragedy, should have some sort of point. I feel like humor should have some sort of redemption to it, some sort of value beyond just making you laugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I'm all for laughing, but it's nice that if, if you feel like you're laughing and that there's substance to the laughter, like there's respect to it, or that it's making a point, or that it's it's all in good fun and not just this. Let's see how ridiculous in the sense of beyond anything you've seen before. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the respect is is probably the key issue, especially for me. I know with most modern comedies, I can't really laugh at them because I don't like the characters that much. I mean, okay, so a character is supposed to be kind of dim-witted or even selfish. You still need to be able to love them. You love Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers. I mean, they're, yeah. they're crazy. They're well, insane, more- but they're fun. But... Well, even more modern, um, I used to watch a lot of Simpsons. Even Homer's a dope. I mean, he, yeah. but he cares. Mm-hmm. He's not try, He's not just dumb. I yeah. mean, he's dumb plus other things. And he can he can be incredibly yeah. selfish. Yeah. But then eventually, he always remembers how much he loves Marge. Yeah. And... I mean, there, there's a sense that there's a, there's like a like an anchor, a, a center to it, and maybe that's it. That sometimes when humor doesn't have a center to it, because if you're just pushing outwards, you have nothing to come back to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you feel like there should be some sort of ground to your humor. Yeah. Well, it, it comes back, this is becoming uh, very similar to our tragedy discussion yeah. in yeah. a sense. Maybe not in the sense that you want your comedy to say something, but, but it should emanate from a, a stance or a perspective rather than just, we're going to make fun of everything because... Yeah, I, think just, I think you just start making fun of everything. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I, I've always felt, and that it's, that's certainly one thing that certainly bothers me about some modern senses of humor. The idea that nothing is sacred really bothers me. Mm-hmm. I've never... To me, it that. seems like if having something sacred makes everything funnier. <laughs> well, it's like, it's, how, it's like how modesty actually makes a person more attractive because, you know, there's something hidden, you know, secret that's about that really person. Good example there. Well, that's that's coming from a Taylor, for, or a Taylor Upland a professor well, that okay. comments said that. Well, At least in terms of modesty. But I can see how it applies to humor, too. If there's something deeper beneath the laughter, then it's going to resonate more. And it's going to be a more joyful laughter rather than a kind of flippant thing. And that's from Lewis. <laughs> there's there's two uh, 
Okay, Rowan Atkinson, who I think is a very funny guy. Mm. Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean, you like the guy, even though he's just insane. <laughs> but I remember going to see Johnny English with my dad. And that movie was just painful. Because it just felt like it got worse. I mean, he just got farther and farther away. You knew, And everyone could see what was going to happen. And it was going to go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And you just couldn't quite... It was more painful. First season of The Office is the same way for me. First season of The Office is too painful. You're, you're like, everyone's making fun of other people at their expense. You just feel like, poor people. And then later on, you feel like, even though they're, you know, Michael Scott's a horrible, horrible man, that <laughs> he, deep down, wants to be good. You know, and he's kind of a sad little man, but the other people recognize that and are caring for him every once in a while. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. My dad can't stand The Office. It makes him way too tense. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've never been a fan of The Office. I mean, at least in the sense of I'll sit down and watch it. It's like I, I would probably I would probably have the same reaction as your dad. Actually, <laughs> well, of course, your dad actually being a boss would probably <laughs> it probably doesn't help. That's true. That's true. <laughs> because it is uncomfortable sometimes. But I felt like after the season or a season or two, it found a balance where everyone kind of they respected each other a little bit more. It wasn't quite so heart wrenching. Going back to the Muppets real quick, because it's hard for me to resist. <laughs> I, I do think that idea of respect comes a lot from Jim Henson's own worldview and, and how Jerry Jewell, the main writer, understood that. And they'd said as much there. That's not completely my own interpretation. So, Oh, here, here. Um, Riff Tracks. Oh. It, which, or, or, or Miss Ryan's Theater, which I've never heard of either of them. Th- their whole point is to watch a movie and just kind of do, make fun of it during it. And in theory, sometimes I wouldn't like this. Like, if they just do it mean or just to be it down. But sometimes it's, most times they do it in such a way that it feels like it's adding to the movie in some way. Like, the enjoyment of the movie. Yeah, it's def- I think it's definitely strongest when they sort of, you can kind of tell there's kind of a fond affection for the badness, in a sense. Especially with Mystery Science Theater. Sometimes when it just gets, like, really, really cheesy, then it's like, this makes it even more fun because... It's ridiculous, you know, but it, we can have fun with it. Yeah, I, I think because I've seen, I've heard, done some of them where they're just mean, more mean. It just it, it's not as funny to me. It doesn't. Yeah, the star. I remember the star. We watched episode two when the Star Wars prequels, and it was kind of mean spirited, which I felt kind of bad in a sense. Because the creator, someone still made this, even if you don't like it, even if it's horrible, someone still made this thing. Yeah, I mean, and they put they poured hours and days worth of their time and and expenses into it. I mean, so it's, it is kind of a fine line, I think, they walk. But, I mean, when they're good, they're really good. Yeah. Here's one downside of, I don't know as much modern humor, but in some modern humor, and also some older humor, I feel like it can become nihilistic. Hmm. And my thing is, I like my Python a great deal. They make fun of all sorts of things. Intelligent things. I mean, the level of intelligence of some of their humor. <laughs> I mean, where they have, like, the Greek philosophers versus the European philosophers in soccer. Or, like, there's a game show where all the communist dictators are trying to win furniture. and <laughs> Stuff like that. I mean, really funny stuff. But they'll make fun of anything. And sometimes it seems like they make fun of so much that it just beats down the meaning of anything. Mm-hmm. I think humor should not destroy meaning. Because then it's just, it's that absurd humor in the sen- in like a Camus or a existential sense where you laugh because you don't want to cry. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Humor, at least from our Christian perspective, should be something that is uplifting, that will make you more joyful at being alive. Because, well, for one thing, a merry heart does good luck in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think laughing in a sense of joy, not, not just a sense of, like you said, not just to keep yourself from crying, but in that... To brighten the world up. Yeah, I think is, is a wonderful thing. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? So, we talked about Homestar Runner, and I thought, we really need to put a song for Homestar Runner on. And I thought I thought about the tr- the, the common ones through the Trogbor and the you know Vahodu gods and stuff, Ooh. Ooh. or you know the techno song. We could do that for ourselves, you know, <laughs> dancing robots. 
But I thought I'd pick a little different one. And what I love about this song is that it's pure just Homestar Runner. It's, it's ridiculous. They take it way too seriously. I mean, and they're just having lots of fun. I mean, I would I would listen to this song numerous times. I just keep replaying the same cartoon over and over again. Because it's catchy. It's catchy. It's fun. It's, you know, they're making fun of their own fact that this cartoon's kind of lame. Because yeah. this whole, it's the loading song. It's the song for the cartoon where they just show you a collection of all their loading screens. Which may have been another sign that the website was beginning to run dry. But, so, but it's, a, it's a great song. Coach Z comes and does some of his rapping. And... <laughs> Coach Z rapping. Yep. So enjoy. Dope tracks and dope beats, I can offer you that. So much more of Coach Z, it remains to be seen. Yo, Homestar, come and peep his loading screen. Hey, I remember that loading screen. Do you remember that loading screen? Don't you win? Remember that loading screen? Maybe you should tell them all about that loading screen. It's the loading screen. It's the loading screen. I can't believe this cartoon is just all the loading screen. It's the loading screen. It's the loading screen. I don't like that loading screen. I kind of like that loading screen. Tap that foot, tap that foot, old Homestar one. Tap that foot, tap that foot, tap that foot, old Homestar one. Tap that foot, tap that foot, tap that foot, old Homestar one. Tap that foot, tap that foot, tap that foot. Come on, old Homestar, tap that foot. And that was the loading song. The loading song. Is it? Is it called loading screens? Loading the the. I think the skit's called Loading Screens. Okay. That's true. I don't know what the name of the actual song is. Probably the Loading Screens. Well, if the Brothers Chaps are listening, please let us know. We would love to know. And we'd love to have your autograph, too, actually. Yeah, come on our show. Yeah, that'd be We'll awesome. do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> In your voices only, though. Yes, exactly. <laughs> our next segment today will be Cinema Selections with Brian Scherchel. And welcome back to the show, Brian. It's always good to see you or hear you. Very good to see you again, Tim. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Today, Brian, we've got uh, an interesting, unusual kind of film, I think. Um, wh and what would the name of that be? This would be Fritz Lang's Metropolis from 1927. And we talked a little bit about this last time when we did Never Ending Story, just as an example of German expressionism. And some people might say the pinnacle of it. Yes, I would say the one of the most definitive films in German Expressionism, period. Another one would be Nosferatu from 1922. That comes very close because of all the, of all the powerful imagery in that as well. Um, but this is pretty much it. I'm glad we did have Never Ending Story as a, way, as a segue for German Expressionism because you probably got to see some of the connection between the two. Yeah. In, in the in the, the cinematic technique. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about the, the vivid imagery stuff because this this movie has a lot of vivid imagery that I, I can see how it just really stick with an audience. Yeah, there's there's a couple scenes I'm like, this is a great shot. My first one was um when Fred Frieder, is that how you say the name? The main character's name? I say Freighter. Freighter. Um Freighter. Yeah, it's Freighter and then it's Joe Freighterson. It's a silent film, so we're just reading their names. We don't actually hear him pronounce it. So the son, Freder, um, he goes down into the worker city, and that scene at the machine when it gets it gets crazier and crazier. I thought was the first time during the movie where I'm like, okay, this is really cool. Uh, pretty pretty amazing set. Yeah, some of the sets are cr just some of the insane. sets are 
I think the price tag on this film is about two hundred million dollars. Uh, if you like did it today, that's how much it would cost. Wow. It almost I bankrupted the studio. It was sort of like Ben Hur, how it almost bankrupted. I believe it was MGM that did it. That pretty much almost bankrupt, and then of course it made everything back. Mm -hmm. But it almost bankrupted the studio at that at that time as well. Now MGM was what who did Ben Hur? Which what studio did this? Because it's a German film. Yes, this is a. Ufa Studios, and it's is I guess it was the premier studio in uh, Germany, and the the golden age of German cinema was basically between World War One and World War Two. The height of it, I I would say, was around nineteen twenty seven. That's a good midpoint. Um, as things started to get ugly in about nineteen thirty two, thirty three or so, and that was also when Fritz Lang himself, who uh, I believe is Jewish, he moved uh, and left Germany himself. Uh, with his wife, Theo von Harbo, who, as you might have seen in the credits, uh, wrote the story to this. Yeah, wrote the book and the script. Apparently there was a book, it looked like. Yes, and part of this is also based on when Fritz Lang first went to New York City. How about you, real briefly for our audience, give us uh, just a thumbnail sketch of the plot, where they have something to grab onto. In the year 2000, Metropolis is a futuristic city sharply divided between the working class, who live in poor conditions but are the basic force for the city's work, and the upper class, which is integrated by mainly the rich and our city and city planners and their families. Set to this background, two persons, one from each class, fall in love with each other. The woman, who is Maria, is a working class prophet who gives hope to the city's workers, and the man, Freder, is the son of the city's mastermind, Joe Frederson. And that's the general premise of the movie. A lot of it is funny how I sort of thought of this, but it is kind of like an upstairs-downstairs setup in, in that you have rules of the game kind of going on here a little, only in a very, very different way. Or if you have, um, like, or sort of like an Agatha Christie setup as well, like in a, in a, only just on such a different scale. And of course, this is also connected to the general premise of the conflict between the upper classes and the lower classes as inherent in... Marx and Engels uh, and their angle on things. But this isn't about the clash as much as it is about the solution to it, right? And so it's not a mirror of Marxism at all, really, is it? And it's definitely not a glowing commercial for Marxism is, is it either. There is a philosophical thing going on here that is so much more important, and it's like the story grows. It's just a piece of the pie, then it takes up the whole pie, and then the pie grows. And that's basically how the plot <laughs> of this movie happens. And then the pie explodes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great description. Maybe that's a completion of, of, the, of the metaphor that I'm trying to put forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I agree with you. When I first started watching it, knowing just the basic thumbnail sketch, I thought, okay, this is going to be a class strife sort of movie. You know, the, the lower class is going to rise up against the upper class and there's going to be, you know, some sort of revolution and... I just expect after experience how things movies tend to work now that the overclass would be painted completely horrible and the you know and if there was either a tragic ending where all the poor people get killed or a happy ending where all the rich people get killed but it was much more complex than that that they never did complete black and white with everything it reminded me of uh, on our comments board we had a discussion about Princess Mononoke and how the characters in that movie weren't necessarily it wasn't all against industrialization or all for complete naturalization. But it was, you know, it was, a, it was a balanced view, and I was actually... Yes, out of, out of all of that turmoil that happens, there's a lot that happens. There's a certainly, lot. It's a, and it's, it's yeah, I'd have to give a uh, disclaimer here. The first part of it is you, you just have to give it time. I mean, this is how this movie goes. And audiences back then, when it was first released, had a hard time, and they some of them do now. But everybody that I have introduced the film to has enjoyed it, which is... Uh, very interesting considering of the type it is. To, to warn the audience, if you sit down and watch this, besides it being a silent film, it's also two and a half hours. Yeah, it's it's a time investment. You want to sit down and watch it on purpose. But, I mean, the interesting thing, and I almost want to put a spoiler warning about it having an ending, because That's true. what I was really shocked by, in a sense, is I, I knew from what I'd heard about it that it had very vivid imagery. I knew kind of it was about class, you know, warfare and, and um, these sort of society issues. What I didn't expect was how suspenseful it would be. I mean, suspenseful of sitting up straight, leaning forward, not having a clue. I mean, it could have very easily turned out good or bad. And I thought there that are was... many points where it could have gone very badly. 
my wife and was watching it with me, and it's, we're, at one point she's like, and she's going to die. <laughs> and it didn't happen, and we were you know pleasantly surprised. Yes, that's that's the part of it. It's also a, a good part of the movie is just how it it doesn't meander. It's very purposeful, very pur- purposefully set up. And I'm surprised at how long it took to create as well. It took two years to shoot. I can believe it. There's so, such massive crowd scenes of that. I mean, it's just un, kind of unbelievable I, thinking how would they even manage this. I didn't. Stuff. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I ever. Last time I saw so many people in one shot, like real people, not like computer generated people. Yeah. What I have here is a uh, 37,000 extras, <laughs> in, including 25,000 men, 11,000 women, 1,100 bald men, 750 children, 100 dark-skinned people, and 25 Asians. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of people. That is a lot. Where did they manage to get Asians in Germany at that in 1927? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what the demography of German cities like Berlin was during the interwar period. Actually, that's yeah, that's a very good point. I, I honestly have no idea. But yeah, the, the interwar period is is a big is that's basically what uh, all of German cinema and the height of it was. And this was also where many great directors learned their craft. And this movie has been imitated so many times by so many directors in so many films. And additionally, this was where Hitchcock learned his trade, was he went to Germany and actually learned how to make films there with Fritz Lang, with people like F.W. Murnau, who's another big German expressionist director. This is the height of the German expressionist experience, essentially. Well, Brian, tell us... Talk to us a little bit about some of the themes and motifs. Obviously, the class warfare interrelations is a big part of it. What are some, what to you are some of the most important ideas from this film? One of the really big important parts is its connection to the French Revolution. You did hear that in the score, didn't you? I, I kept hearing that song. Dun, I kept dun, thinking, dun, 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 yeah. dun. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I know that song, and I couldn't place exactly what I wanted. For some reason, I was, I was singing... 1812 Overture, but yeah. I, I knew that was quite. Yeah, I, I and noticed that. It's funny how the score, which is this is the original score for the film, which I love intensely. It's probably the best science, silent film score I've ever heard. It was a fabulous score, and it helped the scenes. I, I have to, I have to give the writer, the, you know, the composer, some credit here because he had to compose how much music <laughs> for this, for how long of a period. I mean, this is the entire thing. Yeah. Well, it's long enough that you start picking up themes very quickly that would recur, and it and it worked really powerfully. I, Even the Moloch theme from the start, yeah. where, uh, where Freder recounts it to Josephat. Even there, you you get it back. And then the workers theme. What else? Uh, and then that Yoshiwara place <laughs> that has that score with the theme of, uh, which is like a vaudeville esque uh, theme, yes. which uh, goes out of control. And because Yoshiwara goes out of control. And yeah. I think I think that's a perfect name for for <laughs> and that's one of the that's one of the themes of the film. What is Yoshiwara exactly? That's the club where the robot would do yes. all the dancing. Okay. Yes, yes, it's the club where uh, the robot uh, does all of her fancy dancing. I guess we should mention for the audience that there, among all the other things going on, there's also this robot that has been created by an evil genius. Made to look exactly like the... The, the prophet. The working... Yeah. The woman prophet. Maria, yes. And so Yoshiwara is the club. And that's where... Who, who's there? The elites. What did the... What did he say? The upper 10,000? That was the phrase for it. And that's where they go to uh, cut loose, party, uh, enjoy themselves, what have you. But then what happens? It gets twisted into something else. It gets made out of control by this force, which is essentially, what, pure chaos? I was honestly very confused by that scene. I was like, are they, like, looking at her with, with is it lust? Are they in horror? Like, I couldn't okay. quite... Oh, that's, oh, that's, okay, that's perfect. Because that's what will segue us into basics of it, is when we go to the Bible, which is, she is, what, the great whore of Babylon. And what does she do? She dances and she tempts them. But with silent films, there's sometimes a generic aspect to it. She doesn't, especially with Metropolis, what all does the robot represent at that moment? She represents sex, of course, because they are, obviously, the looks of lust are uncontrollable. And not just acting of a silent film. They are uncontrollable. 
uncontrollably drawn to her. Mm-hmm. But it, it could be more things. Could she be sex? Could she be, I mean, sorry, sex. could she be drugs? Could she be any addiction? Could she be alcohol? Could she be money? Could she be, uh, Almost like I mean, abandonment. Like, it's like breaking down all the structures and laws that were already there, that were holding people back. Yes, and of course they fight and kill each other over who's going to get to be with her for the night. I mean, at least that's what looks to be fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's too far off base. Well, and it's interesting, she does the same thing to the working class people, but in a completely different manner. By perverting something else. Yeah. And that's one of my hypotheses about this, is that, is Maria Christianity? That's an interesting... Hmm. You mean the real the real Maria? Mm-hmm. Yes, the real so Maria. Mar- like, it's Mary. I mean, that's the name. Yeah, that, that's what it would imply. There certainly was kind of a, uh, with the... The mediator fr- thing? Yeah, with idea. the mediator thing, yeah. Yes. Cer- there certainly implied him as a Christ figure and her as, like, a Virgin Mary. Bringing forth the mediator. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's true. I, had, I hadn't quite pushed her that far, but there really is, you're correct, a, a very... I mean, there's a heavy religious symbolism anyways, but I never Absolutely, quite yeah. connected it like that. Additionally, one other thing that I thought is, because... Maria is supplanted by the robot. We have the fact that perhaps the robot was perverting Christianity itself and perverting all the rest of her good intentions, her giving them hope for the mediator, etc. I mean, what does she, what does the robot do? Says, there is no mediator. Mm-hmm. She's like an antichrist. Yes. And <laughs> what, what, what else does the robot represent? Because we've had her. As we've had her dancing, she represents certain things there, but when she goes back downstairs in our uh, upstairs-downstairs uh, not-sci-fi uh, experience, we go down there, and she perverts the concept of Maria completely. What else does she represent, though? What does she say? I mean, she brings... I mean, they talk about her br- basically bringing forth the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, because this is... It's unmistakable what she's saying when the, there's that wonderful uh, music when she, and then when it shows that how artsy some of these shots are when it shows her propagandizing them when she's there with the face on the right with these insane expression oh it's she, scary I mean, sometimes she came off to me as very close to demonic the way she acted I mean it was amazing oh yes she was she's one heck of an actress isn't she <laughs> she actually yeah. had a good career in silent films uh, after she did this no doubt. <laughs> I imagine. Two very different takes on the same person. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, so what is she doing? She's brainwashing, propagandizing people, but what is exactly that she says? Who is the living food for the machines in Metropolis? Who lubricates the machine joints with their own blood? Who feeds the machines with their own flesh? Let the machines starve you fools. Let them die and kill them. Kill the machines. Well, what are the machines? The economy? The industry base? the sustainability of society itself? Is it possible that she's basically spouting Marxian rhetoric directly right out of the Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital? Or... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Or it's either that, or it's at least the same kind of rhetoric as the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the French Revolution is a was a still a big talking... You know, it wasn't all that recent in, in generations back like this. And... Mm-hmm. It was much more of an important revolution than the, than the American Revolution in that it took things completely far and to the point that where they had a 10-day week and things were that off. Like, a, like the 10-hour like the workdays. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was about, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and it's interesting to think that quote you said in the sense that her rhetoric was almost more, well, was more dehumanizing than the real Maria's. I mean calling you know the workers like the blood and the lubricants and stuff like that whereas the real maria she makes the she's talking about the head and the hands need the heart to mediate or mediate and, and that and the, yes. they're brothers and sisters with the people up top yes the real maria is acknowledging the injustice but in a completely different and more humanizing manner in a very christian kind of way yeah, yeah. and that segues into another thing which is all about destructive rhetoric and how to recognize destructive rhetoric because it's always right under your nose all the time that humanities and society has existed really right I mean, definitely. Well, and it's interesting that at the at, at the same time maria is doing her destructive stuff friederson has kind of gone 
more destructive on his end too. That there, you know, that was the whole kind of tension. What gives it so much tension because both ends are moving farther and farther away from each other into a kind of a mutual uh, self destruction. Yes, excellent point. Freiderson is Joe Freiderson is a very interesting, multifaceted character in that he cares for some things, does not care for other things, but his desire for power seems to trump all of them. Part of Joe Freiderson's and. I know that C-3PO exists in the world, I mean, it's quite obvious, right? And, and that's obviously, that's in literature around all over the place. So, of course, it was you know, taken from that. And, of course, George Lucas would say, of course it was. <laughs> now, what about another connection? I would say Coruscant. Yeah, I, I got heavy uh, flash of Coruscant from the mm-hmm. city of Metropolis. What does the Jedi Academy look like? <laughs> it looks like Doesn't that. Doesn't it sort of look like the new Tower of Bell? <laughs> it really um, does. That's interesting. However, the biggest, and this is why I brought up Star Wars, uh, <laughs> the biggest thing about Star Wars that I saw connected to this film was Joe Freiderson and his connection to Palpatine. Because what's the general idea here? Freiderson is what? The creator of Metropolis. He's in charge of it. There's no election. He's in charge. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what happens? He, even though he's in charge of it, it is his world. But what does he do to it in order to get more power? He creates chaos in order to justify his whatever he wants to do. Ex- yes, a bigger expression of his power. What does Emperor Palpatine <laughs> do? Yeah, creates an entire galactic civil war in order to... He creates a civil war, and General Grievous breaks into his uh, penthouse uh, apartment, and what does he say? I'm not afraid of you, even though he planned the whole thing. But I found a lot of connections just to that general idea of subverting your own creation in order to just have more power over it that you couldn't before. I mean, that makes a lot of sense for his, his plan, because his plan, at first blush, looks like it doesn't make logical sense. He's like, oh, just let him destroy everything, so that then we can punish him. he just wants Maria subverted, but instead the robot does whatever uh, Rotwang yeah. tells them, or tells her to do it. it <laughs> um, it's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And this brings me to, additionally, the grand concept of false prophets, because that's what the robot is for the, yeah. for the workers. She's a false prophet. And she's a destructive false prophet. And we know how they react once they know they've been fooled. And then, and then the whole general idea of propaganda there. And the French Revolution, when they do it in the score, the, it seems like there's a note off. It's just not quite right. It's, <laughs> yes, that's on purpose. And I want to say it's because it's a, maybe like a poor imitation of the French Revolution, or, or maybe just mocking the general train that they were on at the time, Yeah, perhaps. But I think the French Revolution theme is used uh, five times. It's used quite liberally during uh, during that one portion of the film. Speaking of the false prophet, in Ryan V, the scene I thought was, was that first really hooked me on the movie, where the, the, the workers are working the machine and then goes out of control. And then Frieder has this basically vision of Molech, which, if I know my... Uh, Old Testament gods, right, is what they would sacrifice their kids to. And then it's interesting, at the end of the movie, the false prophet basically moves the workers into a place where they're sacrificing their kids on purpose, as opposed by accident, or mm. as opposed to the machines doing it. And that is the Moloch theme going full circle. Yeah, I mean, it's really clever how many... It really is a perversion. I mean, mm-hmm. the first half and the second half are kind of... Yeah. Reversals. Yeah, it, it is pretty twisted because you think they're throwing off their chains of slavery, but in a sense they're being manipulated and, you know, as much as they ever were. Absolutely, even more so. And for a completely destructive and chaotic end. You talked a bit about how uh, Metropolis could have influenced uh, Star Wars. What other movies do you see Metropolis? I'm sure it's had an impact on an, a lot of movie making, even beyond George Lucas. Quite. It's been imitated many times, sometimes in subtle ways and others in not-so-subtle ways. One of the ones that I recognized automatically was the final scene in the cathedral, which is a reference to what? Or which is referenced in the original Batman by... Uh, oh, Tim Burton. Tim Burton, starring uh, uh, Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. See, I kept thinking of Destroyer. So. <laughs> Actually, I do have to make... A plug here. This show proves yet again all good movies end in the clock tower. <laughs> anyway, so oh, yeah. <laughs> church tower in this case. Church tower. Yeah, I mean, church cell tower. tower. And it's true. I didn't really expect this movie to kind of go out with such a kind of 
some might be tempted to say campy way with well, the hero fighting a villain on on top of the well, building. I'm I, sorry, I'm, I'm sidetracking Brian's answer. But I thought what was fascinating is they put all these big ideas, but it also has all these kind of um, stereotypical or archetypal, you got you know, the mad scientist and the, yes. and the you know, the star-crossed lovers and the, like the Shakespearean two people that look alike or switch places happen, you know, both with Maria and the robot and then also Frieder and um, 11811 or Georgie. That's Georgie, true. Yeah. Um, so it had a lot of Shakespearean sort of archetypes going for it. And also Rod Wang, the mad scientist, he in some way, I, I think maybe, I mean, they didn't even have the word technocracy back then, but maybe that's why the word exists. We know it exists, it exists now. And, Perhaps he was uh, the archetype for that, in that hmm. who ultimately controls the robot? Fredersen or Rodwang? Rodwang does. So back to uh, Tim's question, are there other <laughs> uh, <laughs> directors? Uh, yes, a number of them, inclu- uh, very big directors. Lucas, looks like we have Kubrick, uh, Dr. Strangelove. The mechanical hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, it, that's no, another yeah. Star Wars thing, is the lost hand. And the glove. <laughs> I forgot that's about true. That. Okay, that's a fourth that's connection. Uh, <laughs> 2001 Space Odyssey, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And that, uh, I believe this is a close up of someone's hand on a factory button, painstakingly recreated. Uh, what else? Star Wars A New Hope, we've done. Mm-hmm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Let's see. The India sequence features a close shot of hands pointing at the sky, which closely echoes a shot in the Babel sequence of the track. Interesting. Where, where are you reading this? Uh, Ghostbusters, 1984. This is just from IMDb. Uh, okay. The scene in which the Art Deco temple emits plasma and lightning. Uh, it is resembling to the heart machine scene in Metropolis. Yeah. I have to say, uh, the one of the reasons I first became, I got interested in this film a while ago when I saw Dark City, which from what I hear was a lot of the architecture and art design was influenced from Metropolis. Yeah. Especially the clock thing. Oh. Right when things go... Yeah, I, I, yeah I can see that. And that robot design was really nice. That's true. That was a slick robot design. There are movies in the 50s that don't do that good of a job for... Um, yeah. Yeah. Like no. the laboratory, Rotwing's laboratory, uh, quite impressive. And the robot itself, of course. It occurred to me how much more impressive science fiction this was than, say, this island Earth. Well, <laughs> I, I again, I hesitate to say that this is science fiction. Well, okay. It's, it's set in the future, but that's about... Yeah, that's about where it ends, really. Well, um, but but science fiction sometimes. It, you, well, yeah, sometimes it overlaps. Yeah, science fiction sometimes is just it. Just, it's basically commentary thrown into some sort of fake world, mm-hmm. mm. kind of like nineteen eighty four, like nineteen eighty four sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, Brave New World, Brave New World. Yeah, I know. Uh, I was reading uh, Roger Ebert's one of his reviews about it, and he he also commented how like the whole idea of this city just kind of being filled with the futuristic city kind of filled with sin and decadence and and sort of oppressive living is has inspired any number of films from like blade runner to the fifth element total recall mars yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it's kind of a hellish environment hellish for the viewer too yeah (laughs) (laughs) oftentimes yes yeah right because georgie where does he decide to go when he has freedom here he decides to go to Yoshikara. Yoshikara. And I guess, yeah. apparently, according to the movie, stays there until it closes. <laughs> yeah, because then he goes home. And... Because there's that there's that theme where it's uh, where it sounds like he's uh, down and out for the uh, duration of the morning when he's leaving Yoshikara, which is another great musical cue. But... Mm-hmm. So man, upon getting his freedom, immediately goes and... The wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Correct, yes. As Al Guinness put it himself. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us kind of a summary thought of this? Why should viewers, if they've never seen or heard of this, go check out this insanely long, but insanely good silent film? Metropolis is an exciting and meaningful adventure that is, in a way, a reflection of our own society. As universal as it was when it was originally released, Metropolis, the crown jewel of the German silent film era, is a fantasy about the realities of human existence. Nice. I can tell you always work on your summary, so we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I uh, want to be able to plug this movie because so many people have rated this so highly to this day. If you look at the top 250, how highly it is still rated and how seemingly from the outside is it looks a little inaccessible. But then you get through the first 40 minutes or so 
And about then is when it truly takes off. And then you can hold on to it. After the prologue. After, yeah. <laughs> uh, what about an intermission? What, what more of a better intermission for any movie have you ever seen? <laughs> Usually it's just, what, a, a picture and some music, right? Yeah. There's a still, and uh, this is intermission, and it lasts five minutes, and you go to the bathroom. This it lasts significantly longer and takes you all the way to hell and back, uh, and seven deadly sins, and Babylon, and uh, yeah. the uh, apocalypse is nigh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely a great movie. I yes, it was very enjoyable. Indispensable film. Thanks for joining us, Brian. You're welcome. It's been great. So that was Cinema Selections, and um, if you've seen a movie that we talked about on Cinema Selections uh, since we've been doing the podcast, let us know. That might be a nice little thing to include info for our 20th episode, which is coming up very soon, which means this is a good time lead into our contact info discussion, Nick. Yes, uh, you can visit us on our website at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you haven't recorded a little segment that you would like us to play on the 20th episode, there's still a little bit of time for you to do that. Um, by the time this episode comes out, so I'd say if you get it to us within the next few days, we will be able to stick it in there somewhere. And you can email that to us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. Yeah, we would love to hear what you think, other topics you'd like to talk about, things, just impressions, thoughts, yeah. death threats. <laughs> I mean... That could be interesting. Um, money. <laughs> Do we have a PayPal account? We should. We should. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> 99 cents for a podcast. <laughs> All right. Confuse the cat. With that said, um, I guess it's up to me now to introduce the soundtrack. This is a case where great minds think alike, because <laughs> Nick and I both uh, were tempted to use this song, just because it's so ridiculous. This is from a song from Overclock Remix, actually written by DJ Pretzel. The one and only DJ Pretzel. Who runs the whole site. I think, funny enough, it's kind of odd that this is the first song of his that we're using. No, he has like 50 of them. Yeah, uh, I think he might be uh, mortified that we chose this one to start him <laughs> off with. Because I think, like, in his description for the song, he says, like, it, this would be what... If you play Insanity, he could play this with proof. Yeah, <laughs> on tr for trial or something. But name of this is Hillbilly Rodeo. It's remixed from Bubble Bobble. Great game. And it's just completely ridiculous. It's actually DJ Pretzel himself doing the yodeling. So, yeah, you know you're in for something goofy. And with that said, be ready for our 20th episode coming up soon. Extravaganza! It'll be awesome. Four hours! No. Hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you'll just have to wait and see. And so uh, with that said, enjoy the song. This has been Tim. This has been Nick. Bye-bye. Adios. Come on, Bubba. Let's play some Bubble Bobble.
time on Derailed Trains of Thought. It's the moment you've been waiting for. So what about that new season of The Event, Tim? Man, I cannot wait because I had totally watched The Events all this time. It was like lost, but even better. Yeah. Bring your children. Bring your wife. Bring your dog. Bring anything else you want to bring. Bring lots of money. So I, it's really awesome that your wife decided to dress up as a geisha for our podcast, that, Nick. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, she, she actually volunteered. I'm sure she did. For the 20th episode, Extravaganza! Did you know, Tim, that in the 1920s, swallowing goldfish was quite a sport? That's what I've heard. I'll up right up there with pole, flight pole sitting. Yeah. I was uh, about to say pole dancing. That wasn't <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching too much Americans Got Talent. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> you'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll beat your pants. That's gross. And don't miss special guest Stuart Lim. You've got Stuart Lim. Yeah, seriously. Really? Like, you've actually been to come? I think so. He sent me a letter that was very vague and... He was either promising to come or destroy us altogether. I'm not sure. So, Tim, explain to me how chiptunes and Japanese cinema influenced Lady Gaga. It's a long, sad story, man. I don't think you want to hear all the boy details. You think you've heard everything? You haven't heard anything yet. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> I don't know either. I think next episode, you give me a word, I'll write a story. <laughs> and then you wait listen while we write. While we write. That yeah. would be really exciting. Yeah, really exciting. Episode 20. Live writing. Scratch, 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 scratch. How do you spell the P-E-H? <laughs> <laughs>